Today, as we share together in a reflection about the birth of Jesus, we re-enter the place of connection with the broad spectrum of the body of Christ around the world in many different varied ways, some very high liturgical and others much more casual and uh, spontaneous. An understanding of Advent reminds us that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, brings to each of us the fulfillment of the Father's promise. So last week we began in, in looking together at the candle of prophecy. In various years we have uh, brought this prophecy candle to, in connection with the various aspects of the preparation that the Lord sent for the birth of Jesus. And we hear it from Hebrews chapter 1, where the Bible says, God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spoke in time past to the fathers through the prophets, has in these days spoken unto us by his Son. And the, the clear message of Hebrews 1.1 1, 1, is that the Son, the eternal, only begotten Son of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Son has come to bring us the absolute fulfillment of all that the prophets spoke for the coming of our salvation. And so when we, when we reach the second week in the flow of Advent reflection, we're brought to the other topic that is so wondrous in that first chapter of Hebrews where the writer compares the magnificence, the superiority, the supremacy of the Son of God to various figures that populated the, the wonderful narratives of 2,000 years of history in the Old Testament. And he begins with angels. So I think a good place to begin with angels is the book of Psalms because it is in the, the, the Scripture in Psalms where we read about the purpose of the angels. As, as awesome and as innumerable as the angels are, as vast as the array of their realm of delegated responsibility, we stagger in awe at even what it must have been like to have one glimpse of an angel, much less a conversation with an angel, which we'll see, of course, in our primary text today, that Joseph is given in a dream and then Mary given as the Lord brings her the news that she'll be the mother, the virgin mother of the eternal only begotten Son of the living God. But, but if we step back from that in maybe a more wide-angle lens and ask ourselves, what is the primary role of the angels? Well, I believe Psalm 103 gives us that answer. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word obeying the voice of his word. Of all the exciting and intriguing things we could imagine about angels, it's interesting that Psalm 103 tells us their highest goal is exactly what ours is, <laughs> which is to obey the voice of his word. And yet also, when we think about that, we know that for the angels... 
there is not a totality of knowledge. Their, their realm of understanding is still finite, even in spite of the wondrous assignments that they're given. Now, we know this from uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 10 and 11, where the Apostle Peter describes the angels in a very intriguing imagery. It is as if he says, when they think about what was given to Mary in that responsibility that she carried, it is as if they were peering over the balcony of heaven. Um, the text in the English translation says, uh, the things about the Lord Jesus of which the angels longed to look into. And the J.B. Phillips translation gives us, renders that phrase in an intriguing way. He says, the angels were standing on tiptoe looking at what the Lord would do. Now, what, what they reflect in their finite understanding, even as magnificent as their assignments are, is another reminder to us of what Mary voiced when Gabriel, the primary messenger angel, brought her that wondrous and incomparable news. Mary, you will bear the Son of the living God, and he is the one who will take the throne of his father David that is fulfilling prophecy as well as being the Savior that brings God's immediate presence to every heart that is hungry to know him. And so it's not surprising that in Luke 1.29 that the Bible tells us that Mary's initial response, like ours would be, was awe, was absolute speechlessness, and wonder, seeking as Luke describes it, to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So when we walk right alongside Mary in that encounter with the angel Gabriel, we get a, a bit of a taste of the reason that angels are reflected upon in an Advent time. Because their role in the magnificent plan of God's redemption reminds us that his mighty power to produce and to fulfill all that he has planned is unlimited. It is invincible. And in fact, it is so important to grasp, as Mary came to understand, what the angel was saying to her was beyond her comprehension in terms of her physical experience. And yet it reflected something that Mary would carry and ponder in her heart in the entire journey of her pregnancy, through the birth of Jesus, through, as we saw last week, both mostly ordinary experiences punctuated by occasional extraordinary inbursts of the light of God. And it is her experience that reminds us that in the ordinariness of our lives, we too can reflect back in awe and honor for the other truth that Hebrews 1 tells us, and that is the angel's highest honor was to show the magnificent superiority and supremacy of the only begotten Son of God. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 brings it to us in the very voice of Almighty God, translating to us from the Psalms, 
God the Father speaking to God the Son in the councils of eternity. What a wondrous window into the eternal redemptive plan of God when we hear of the Lord's word of the Son. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Hebrews 1.8 telling us that what Mary could only faintly grasp as she tried to discern what the angel meant, Almighty God in the council of eternity had already made it real. And in that dispatch of the Messiah, the Father's word goes on to say, Your throne is forever, only symbolized in a minor way by the throne of David. An earthly throne could never begin to approximate the magnificent of the eternal throne. And yet the throne of David language in Luke 1 is the reminder that God used earthly imagery to fulfill specific physical promises to magnify what can't be seen, what Mary stood in such awe about. And so the word of the Lord is, your throne is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, of course, this, these facts about the angel's role is so vital to the entire story of God's plan of redemption and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, that they're presented. The early church found ways, often through very concise, very sparsely worded hymns to bring a hymn just as we hear we love to get new songs here and celebrate the Lord with new songs well the new songs for them were often embedded in hymns that brought the clarity of these eternal verities to the hearts and lips of the redeemed people of God and here first Timothy 3:16 is one many scholars believe it may have been one of the very earliest of the hymns composed could very well have been composed among the Jerusalem believers or the Antiochian believers, even in that decade before the Gospels were even penned. It dates back to the earliest experiences of the redeemed people of God on the Lord's Day, celebrating the resurrection and the triumphant grace of our Savior. And here's how they capsulized it, like vital truths in a capsule of a hymn. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, an oblique reference to the resurrection, was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. A quick summation of vast and life-transforming truths that answered in a concise way what Mary wondered about and pondered in her heart. Would you just uh, voice that those few words of that uh, ancient hymn aloud with me from 1 Timothy 3.16. Would you say it aloud with me? He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we truly could never begin to put into the fullest expression our sense of shared awe with what Mary could only grasp barely in her 
earliest encounter with the angel Gabriel, and yet we can stand here today and know that even, even with advantages that Mary didn't have, the, written, the complete written word of God, all that uh, she could only have, have barely begun to, to, to scratch the surface of, and yet you gave to her, with that limited understanding, the highest honor of all imaginable, to be the virgin vessel in whom the eternal, invincible embryo of Almighty God would be placed for her to bear and to carry and to raise and to nurture and to love even until she wept in those hours of his death on the cross. And then she herself, Mary, became a part of the earliest believer's She herself, Mary, needed the new birth and the infilling of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God, just as all of us do. And so there she was. There was Mary, with her heart full of the wonder of who you are. And yet she was among the earliest believers in Acts 1.14, experiencing this wonderful gift of the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we today realize in a new way Lord, in the midst of our particular circumstances, your plan that this good news to Mary, you shall bear the one who is the only begotten Son of God. We would take that to heart today to thank you that indeed, Emmanuel, you are with us. For those who face grief, difficulty, anguish, questions, lack, illness, personal struggles, financial stress, and an array of unanswered questions today. May may all of our hearts join with Mary's to say, be it unto me, be it unto me, Lord, according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, I wanted to also take a moment today to put a couple of personal notes of of gratitude to this uh, time that we share Um, because in the experience in the journey of a church like ours of course there have been many places along the journey where we have seen the way God uses his people in such such beautiful ways maybe not always um, known by others (laughs) and um, today I'm thinking of two individuals in the life of our church whose um, grace in loving Jesus uh, touches us and serves us today. Now, this morning, down the hall, assisting the, the team with the children is Joe Gorman, and uh, I am want to share briefly about his beloved Sylvia, who we s- together celebrated her life in March when she went to be with the Lord Jesus. I couldn't, uh, though, go past Advent today without saying this entire set was Sylvia's idea. She designed it and dedicated it to Liberty Church. And um, it's just a beautiful thing to share. The other is that um, the back table that's been beautifully decorated all these times, just a gift of love to the church by Nikki Florentine, that Nikki and her husband Jim 
are always eager to step forward and serve in, in ways. Though Jim is a member of uh, Grace Bible Church, our friends at uh, uh, Pastor Greg Green and, the, and our, our great friends there at Grace Bible. But she and, and Nick, he and Nikki together love to serve here and there. And she uh, has given um, her time to making these beautiful decorative tables. And I mention it today because um, I'll ask you to keep Nikki in your prayers as she goes through some things right now that have, are, are keeping her homebound. They, I hope you're listening today, Jim and Nikki. They often are uh, or listen later in this service. But uh, Nikki not only loves to do this decorating, but it bothers her badly when she can't do the change out in the season. And I got to thinking this morning, I want to say this because here uh, she was troubled about uh, 10 days ago. I can't come change the Thanksgiving. I said, Nikki, don't worry about it. I said, it's beautiful. I love it. It's just beautiful. And I said, thank you for all that you do. And I wanted to take a moment this morning to thank Nikki and Jim again and also to say uh, this uh, quiet reflection, a silent sign of people serving Jesus on that beautiful table there is another reminder of, of what we can share in, in a church body experience. And, uh, of course, both, um, all of that means a lot to all of us, and uh, we're grateful. Amen. Would you open your Bible today? Uh, I hope you brought your own copy of, of the Word of God today. And I want to invite you now to open your Bible, the first page of the New Testament. And if you were here last week, you know, today is part two of a two-part uh, look at the first chapter of the New Testament. Now, I call this the power of page one. <laughs> and the reason I do is that it's a bit of a um, counterintuitive experience for many people. When they open their Bible, they open their New Testament, and initially many people maybe that have opened it for the first time or the first few times and are curious about how can I really get into the Bible now. And they might be immediately surprised to find that on the first page, on page one of their New Testament, they are presented with a list in 17 verses of over 56 names, many of whom they probably would have difficulty pronouncing. Um, and we started last week to take a look at why is this chapter so vital? Why is it here? What can we draw from it? Why is it obviously a bit puzzling to many readers to first encounter uh, chapter 1 of the New Testament? And we're taking two weeks to look at what is the vital gift of chapter 1, the power of page 1 in, um, in our Bibles. And as you open your own Bible there to page 1 of your New Testament, and notice with me there that um, on the power of page 1, you have wording that, uh, again, is not the kind of wording that... Uh, you feel like, oh, this is leading me into an exciting story, but it really is. And what we're looking at last week and this week are two different metaphors uh, that I have thought of to help me to convey what I think is often a greatly overlooked uh, blessing in our experience of growing in grace. And and that blessing is to realize the distinctive way that God graced the gospel writers to convey the 
distinctives about Jesus. The things that are very, very unique that we can't learn any other way that may challenge our, our brains a bit, but the challenge is so well worth it because it helps us realize that God is up to something often. Well, I should say that more accurately, always. God is always up to things that we, we are merely, uh, barely scratching the surface of understanding. And that fact should cause us a stirring of hunger to seek Him and to know Him and to understand why something that feels a bit foreign to us, why it's so vital. So the two metaphors that I'm working with, last week I talked to you about the fact that, um, that, that, that page one of the Gospel of Matthew is an absolutely vital anchor for the, the reality that when you and I share about the love of Jesus Christ, we are giving ourselves and others the good news about the risen Lord and His kingdom that is anchored in real history. Now that is vital when we think of how many concepts and notions and beliefs and even superstitions that our world is full of. You would think that as much as Many people today pride themselves on being the scientific age and following science and these other catchphrases that uh, there would be an intense interest in the veracity of various claims and truth claims. And it's ironic and beautiful in a way that in our generation it's actually become more important to know Matthew more important to understand why these truths are here than ever before for the simple reason that true Christianity, the following of Jesus, the loving of the Lord, the, the gift of, the, of God's new birth in the life of a receptive heart, the power of the Holy Spirit and all that He wants to do is in our lives is competing against a plethora of fantasies and superstitions and weird and wild notions that are often embedded in the mystical realm of internal beliefs. Now, here we see Matthew gives us an actual anchor, a tangible anchor to the real history that God used in order to make it crystal clear why it was necessary for us to be saved through the personal coming of the incarnate God. In other words, I couldn't save myself no matter how many great in good intentions I had, no matter how many religious paths I may choose, and the common phrase is you can uh, choose many paths to God. Actually, that's a nice, uh, I guess, maybe to some people, a comforting notion, but there's no proof of it. And indeed, the proof is the opposite, that God has shown a way, a wondrous way, in the life and fullness of the incarnate God dwelling among men. John described it in John 1:12 and 14 when he said, Christ the Lord came to his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, 
born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of man, but born of God. How could that be? How could it even be possible that a human heart could be regenerated and be made right with a holy God in spite of its deep depravity in its natural sense? And the answer comes in John 1.14 when God when John summarizes the entire mystery of the entire of the plan that we reflected on in 1 Timothy 3.16. When John said the word, the eternal logos, became flesh. And he, not a concept, not a religious theory, not a superstition, not a new ritual, not a ladder to climb an imaginary ladder of good works to try to climb into the clouds and become virtuous. No, none of that. The Word, the eternal Word, became human and dwelt among us, took up His tabernacle among us, and we beheld His glory. John says, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this Magnificent fact is anchored in Matthew 1, page 1 of our New Testaments in the real history of the people of Israel. Now, we summarized that last week by mentioning there are these four categories of these people in the seed line. Remember that in this 16 verses, if your Bible is open to Matthew 1, in the 16 verses that lead up to the declaration, the 17 verses really to the declaration of this is how the birth of Jesus came about in verse 18. That if you take that entire 17 verse section, that um, it spans from the promise of God to Abraham until Mary was told she would bear in her virginity the eternal only begotten Son of God. There's a span of about 16 to 1800 years. And your Bible with Matthew 1 open, you're looking in 17 verses, at the span of summarized history, skipping over various individuals in the chain, but connecting them in two covenant links that we'll look at in a moment. And there are four parts or types of these characters. We saw the patriarch type, Abraham, Boaz in the story of Ruth, the redemptive part, the royal bloodline of the future reign of the throne of David. Another physical and historical fact that was set in place to demonstrate that there was an earthly plan of God in using the Jewish people as his instrument never to exclusively give his grace only to them but to use them as his vehicle to make the redeeming grace of God and the plan of every heart being able to meet God, make that plan real for the entire world. You know, this little part here is so important that in Galatians 3.8, the Apostle Paul did something quite unusual in that he used the word Scripture as the literal voice of God birthing grace into the world. And in Galatians 3.8, the Apostle Paul writes that the Scripture says, or the Scripture sends, the good news through the covenant promise to Abraham. How could it say that? Simply because exactly as chapter 1 of Matthew shows, 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Do you see it in your Bible? Matthew 1, 1. Open our Bible to the first chapter, the first words. And we get this summation. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So in that first verse, that span of 1,800 years, in one verse, is summarized in two crucial phases. The promise to Abraham and the narrowed focus on the line of David, the covenant promise to David, the Messiah, the promised one, will be of the seed of David. And these trajectories of truth travel through the corridors of time until now zip our eyes down to verse 18 of Matthew 1 until we get what after the series of explanations then we get this wonderful truth. Would you read it in your own Bible? I've got the New International Version opened here. I hope you have either maybe the NIV or the ESV. It's fairly close. Let's read. I'd like you to hear this part, Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. In Matthew 1.18, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. And yet, that is, he's faithful to this history we're talking about, this, all this vast history, not just the law of Moses, but all that preceded the law of Moses, the covenant with Abraham. Joseph was faithful to the law. God gives us a silent sentinel in Joseph, a man who's, of whom there is no word recorded that came from his lips. And yet from Matthew 1, part of the power of page 1 is it shows us Joseph, this silent sentinel, like a metronome a musician would use to practice a piano or a violin. This metronome Joseph walks through these events as a picture of a faithful servant imperfect and flawed and sinful like all of us, and yet a faithful servant in light of what God promised. And so before they came together, Joseph takes Mary as his wife, but preserves her virginity in response to the angel's message that this one to be born of her is none other than the promised Emmanuel, God with us. And Mo Joseph's motivated by not wanting her to be embarrassed, realizing what the angel has told him in the dream. Joseph is now saying, I don't want my Mary to be embarrassed and, and exposed to public shame as, as would happen in that community in a typical way if it became known that She's pregnant before their planned wedding. So Joseph did not want her to be exposed to public disgrace, and he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. 
What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph then fulfills in the narrative part. Now, go back into your text to verse 16, where the genealogy ends. <laughs> Here's the amazing thing. This genealogy, this thing we think, why am I reading all these words, all these names? This genealogy is connecting that covenant promise to Abraham, the narrowed trajectory of the royal line through David, down through centuries, even after the dynasty of David was destroyed when king number 19 of Judah failed in his, became a cursed king, and the dynasty ended in terms of Jerusalem's rulership, and yet the bloodline continued. It's pretty amazing to realize that these impossible obstacles that were embedded in the miracle of the virgin birth were such that no human being could have fulfilled this. Think of it. Almost six centuries after the dynasty of the throne of David ended at the reign of King Jeconiah, the royal line, the seed line, continues. And as the seed line continues, on down through the corridors of time, what we find is that God Almighty has sovereignly preserved the royal line so that David, so that Joseph is an heir in his family line all the way back to Solomon and then to David, but that Mary's line, her family line in the third chapter of Luke, shows us that Mary is also a daughter of David, biologically, but her line goes back to the other son of David named Nathan. And so what we have is Mary, biological mother, chosen by God, virgin birth, and jo Joseph, the foster father, chosen by God, fulfilling the royal line. And because of that, then, what we have is Joseph, son of David, when the angel says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Legally, Joseph is in the seed line for the dynasty that is now in exile. <laughs> oh, isn't God good? But Mary, in virginity, is the mother of Jesus. And so I said that we looked at the metaphor of an anchor for this chapter. Now, the second metaphor that we're working with is this metaphor, that we could also see that Matthew 1 is a bridge from law to grace. Now, there are various ways that this is reflected in the text, probably um, the most significant are the words we've already read where the angel said to Joseph, um, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from his sins. And to summarize it, I think a good way to say why is chapter 1 of Matthew a bridge from the realm of law into the powerful realm of grace, all designed by God because Romans 8 3 and 4 is a great way to summarize it. If this is important to you for your own personal study, I would encourage you to jot that down and look at Romans 8, 3 and 4. It actually describes why we need Matthew 1. 
because what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by, would you read the yellow words aloud with me, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. Now, how did he do that? He became flesh, as we heard from John. He became human, fully human, fully God, the God-man. Making the Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the one born of Mary, the only human being who ever lived, who could take the snake of sin, and rip its head off. The only human who's ever lived who could conquer, who could complete what God said to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, you will strike his heel, but the seed of the woman will crush your head. And Romans 8, 3 and 4 is saying that's exactly what Jesus did. He condemned sin in the flesh. The chapter begins with the statement, there's no condemnation now to those that are in Christ Jesus. The reason there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus is that Jesus condemned sin itself. He ripped the head off the serpent of sin. You know, it'd be okay. To, I, I like to say to the kids, it's okay to make noise in church. It, it'd be okay to shout right now, actually. It would be okay to shout. Now, we, if we come to this question, the big why, then the big why, why of this chapter? Now, we've already seen that it's an anchor into history, and it's a bridge from law to grace. So then that kind of leads us, well, then why does the New Testament open with this chapter? I think that's kind of the big why. And I uh, touched on it last week when we saw that though Matthew of the four gospel writers, Matthew's distinctive focus is more on the Jewish fulfillment, yet we saw last week when we looked at the Great Commission, that Matthew, that's not his exclusive focus. In fact, the beautiful thing about Matthew, in fact, it's, it's quite a wondrous thing. The more I've delved into it in this particular study, I've, I've literally stood back in amazement at the weaving together, the textured way, the deft and elegant way that the Holy Spirit, through a very methodical writer, Matthew, as we saw, is kind of the earliest catechism writer of the earliest churches. He gives us a very organized gospel with, with the uh, Sermon on the Mount in three chapters all compressed together with ten successive miracles in chapter 8 and 9. He loves the number ten in his gospel, and he uses tens a lot, and he has five places from Matthew 1 to Matthew 28 where he divides up the whole narrative with a statement that after these things, Jesus went on to the next part of his mission. It's a beautiful symmetrical and powerfully organized presentation of Jesus, King of kings, King of the Jews, the heir, yes, to the throne of David, for sure, on earth. But that throne of David was only a foreshadowing, a type of the eternal throne that we already saw in Hebrews. God said, your throne is forever and ever. Now, I think we can summarize the answer. The big why is in two ways all compressed together. One is that 
The universal scope of the gospel is part of what Matthew is outlining here. And he does it by highlighting five women. He, in, in each of these cases, the women would be individuals first by virtue of being women, would never have been even mentioned in most Jewish accountings of the genealogy because of the customs of their time. But not only does he choose these women for mention in that list of names, but he, in each case, he doesn't choose the women that many people would have chosen from Israel's history. Oh, I guess if it was up to a lot of people, they would have chosen women like Sarah. Uh, They would have chosen a Jewish like Esther uh, for good reason. They would have chosen an, a, a wise Jewess like Abigail, and, and there would be others. But the, the gospel writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a brief mention, an oblique mention, to first Tamar, one who became a mother in the line of the Messiah, though she was an outcast, not an Israeli, but through a horrible and almost nightmarish series of events. And yet, God uses her to be a chosen vessel, the mother of Perez and Zerah, and Perez is an heir, an ancestor of, of the uh, Lord Jesus in the line, in the bloodline. Then he chooses Rahab the harlot, who the Bible tells us in her faith was distinguished by trusting in the God of Israel and being the one who negotiated a place of access for the spies when they came into the land. And Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that by faith, Rahab demonstrates this this power of the gospel that Matthew is is hinting at. And uh, when we see these stories and, and Ruth and Bathsheba, we see the universal scope of the gospel, and we see why that uh, the... That the uh, book of Ephesians tells us in Ephesians 2.19 what, pro- what we could surely say about Tamar and about Rahab and about Ruth the Moabitess and about Bathsheba later who was disgraced by her adultery with David and her story becomes a picture of catastrophic gr- grief that in confession of sin and response to God becomes a picture uh, foreshadowing of the redeeming grace of Almighty God, putting even Bathsheba in the royal line leading to Joseph, the foster father of Jesus. And what does this all tell us? Well, I think in closing, there are two parts of Ephesians that are highlighted. One is Ephesians 2.19, where uh, the, the summary of this great truth is that so then you and I who were foreigners and strangers to the covenants of promise. And that's me in my natural birth. It probably is most people in this sanctuary. That in our being outside of what they thought traditionally was the parameters of the covenant of God's plan, yet in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 2.20 goes on to say, For through him we both have access by faith in one spirit to God the Father. What does that mean for us? The universal scope of the gospel that Matthew's first chapter envisions? 
means that now when you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've said, Lord, I, I want you to be the center of my life. I come to give my heart to you that you can be a part of those across the span of time and across the globe today. Though they may be so diverse in so many ways that Ephesians 4 tells us there is one, and would you say it aloud with me together, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. The first chapter of Matthew then lays this redemptive foundation. But then it also gives us, the second part of what it gives us, is an intriguing fact about Jesus. And this is where Matthew's distinctive mainly focuses. And that is, in order to have that one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, that, that uh, access given to the redeemed people of God, every single promise down to the punctuation marks of God's Word had to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And this explains why a, a, a surprising phrase comes from the lips of Jesus when he's talking to the woman at the, uh, at the well in John 4. She's a Samaritan woman, and he's come there. She's come to get water, and Jesus has said, if, would you get me a drink of water? And she said, why are you talking to me, a woman and a Samaritan? Uh, that was odd to her initially. And Jesus said, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is asking you for a drink of water, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She says, sir, my family's been here for many years, and we come to draw from this well. Where's this alive water? Where's this living water? What is this? Jesus said, he that drinks this water in this well will keep thirsting and keep thirsting. Whoever drinks the water that I give him, it will be in her a spring of living water that will always overwhelmingly supply. And then the woman says, Sir, give me this water that I don't drink again. Now Jesus then engages her in this invitation. She continues to argue with him about uh, vague religious concepts. And she says, yeah, my, our fathers worship on this mountain. You Jews say you should worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus is stepping back and saying, the one who is here is taking you far beyond mountains and temples and tabernacles and rituals and liturgies. No, you're talking to the one who in the womb of Mary brought the incarnate word of the living God to planet earth. <laughs> and he says, you worship what you do not even understand. We know, we know what worship means because salvation is of the Jews. Now, you might read that out of context and think, wow, that sounds like a kind of an ethnically insensitive statement. <laughs> you know, that's not woke <laughs> for sure. But no, he, he, Jesus is saying exactly what chapter 1 has shown us. With your, when you close your chapter in a moment in chapter 1 of Matthew, remember that that chapter tells us that in order for this great good news to reach every corner of the globe and every ethnic group under heaven, and why there will be redeemed people 
out of every tribe and kindred and nation under heaven singing to the Lamb, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you've redeemed us by your blood. You can say it's because of chapter 1. Would you say with me, chapter 1, chapter 1. It matters. He did it all to make redeeming grace the inheritance of every thirsty heart. Now, when we pray now for a moment, I'm going to ask you to think about this just before you go. And that is, hey, you know, I came here today and I, <laughs> and I found myself looking at a list of names in the Bible. <laughs> and this list of names that might have been meaningless to me is a reminder to me that embedded in that list of names are four women who are characteristic examples of the foreshadowing of a great truth that now I'm an heir of. And that great truth is that the Lord Jesus came not just to forgive us of past sins, but to save us, deliver us from our sins. Would you pray? Lord, I thank you that in the mighty power of the gospel, we have this assurance that it's far more than simply a washing away of the past. No, it's new life in Jesus Christ, the living Lord. Lord, like it was foreshadowed in, in the experience of Rahab the harlot, who trusted the word of the living God and was delivered by that word. As it was foreshadowed in the wondrous example of the beautiful romance of Ruth and Boaz, where Ruth a Moabitess with no claim of any of the covenant promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet became the great, 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 great grandmother of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> she became Ruth in the line of that wonderful seed line. Lord, in all the other ways that, that grace and your glory for the gospel was christened and foreshadowed in, in this genealogy. Lord, give us today the heart that says, in my life, Lord, I give to you my questions, and I ask you to be and to lead me as Lord and shepherd of my soul. In Jesus' name. As we close, I want to ask you, keep your eyes closed just a moment, because I want to say to you something we don't say every week, but it's real every week. We love, we love to connect on a personal basis. We don't make a big scene out of an altar call for a number of reasons. We know you want to go home and eat. <laughs> but also, we know that there's a need for a connection point. And there's a need to get answers to questions. And there's a need to go into the Scripture and to be specific. Here's where I struggle and to go right into the Word of God and to see that and to share that and to, and to meet together. So there's an open invitation. We love to meet with individuals, couples, small groups. But one-on-one, -on -one, if you need to see someone, you need prayer for something, you might not want to share with just anyone. You, you want it to be in a safe and confidential way. We love that. And the Holy Spirit is inviting and wooing us to together today as a church body to be a people who walk along our friends with companionship and empathy. Lord, in this week ahead, may every person here move out with this good news of the gospel to 
go tell it on the mountain, to go shout this good news in every way you send us. In Jesus' name, amen.